Keep your Bibles open to that passage. Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 26 will be our text this morning. And the title of the sermon is Blessings and Woes. Blessings and Woes. After Jesus chose the twelve, Luke's gospel account goes on with the Sermon on the Plain. This is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It may be the same sermon. There are certainly striking similarities in the content. There's also some significant differences. The description of the location is different. There appears to be a difference in the timing of these two sermons based on the uh, gospel accounts in which they're found. The actual content of the sermon varies as well. For example, this sermon found in Luke is much shorter than the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew. Also, this sermon contains the section of woes which find no counterpart in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's quite possible that Jesus delivered two sermons on the same theme with slight variations, uh, and that he did this on more than one occasion. Throughout Luke, we find other excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount. It's also possible these are, in fact, the same sermon, that the differences only reflect a difference in emphasis between the Gospel writers. Whatever the case may be, here we get to uh, this sermon in Luke's Gospel account. And this morning, we're only going to deal with the first part of the sermon, which we find in our text, the blessings and the woes. Now, from this text, we learn what God calls a blessing and what God calls woe. Now, these are important terms to understand if we will correctly interpret and apply these words from Jesus. Blessing does not merely mean fortunate or happy. In Scripture, the idea of blessedness is tied in with the favor of God. Remember the blessing that God gave to Aaron and his sons for the people of Israel in Numbers 6, 23-26. Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. The next verse, verse 27 says, And they, the priests, shall put my name, that's the Lord's name, upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. It's the idea of blessedness tied in with the favor of God. Blessings, blessedness, it's inseparably linked with the favor of God. All the good things in this world, apart from the favor of God, are in reality a curse. Making the broad way smooth and pleasant, but it leads to everlasting death. And on the other hand, if your way is hard and full of pain and suffering and trials, yet God's favor is upon you, then you are blessed in that way because it leads to life everlasting. So blessedness, it's linked to the favor of God. Now, woe is an interjection that announces condemnation or grief. By itself, the word woe doesn't really mean anything. Its significance to us in this study comes from the way it's used in Scripture. This interjection is used over 50 times just in the prophetic books of the Bible to introduce prophecies of doom upon particular people, groups of people, and nations. Just as blessed is linked to God's favor, woe is linked to God's curse. And from this text, we learn what Jesus called blessed 
and what Jesus called woe. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Lord, we pray that as we look at this sermon that you preached 2,000 years ago, we pray that you would do a fresh work in our hearts here this morning. Lord, may we be challenged and convicted and enlightened from your word. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, let's look at the setting in which we find this sermon. Verse 17 begins, And he, Jesus, came down with them, that's the twelve apostles, and stood in the plain. Now, remember, Jesus was on a mountain somewhere in Galilee, probably near the city of Capernaum. And he went up this mountain the night before to pray. And in the morning, he called his disciples, and he chose twelve from among them. And in this text, we read that he came back down from the mountain with the twelve that he just chose. Now, verse 17 continues and tells us who else was present on this occasion. We're told the company of his disciples, a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. So his disciples were there. This was not only the twelve, which he had just called to be apostles, but a much larger group that were called his disciples. Again, a disciple is just one who follows another's teaching. A disciple was not only a pupil, but an adherent. Disciples were imitators of their teacher. And there was a large group of people following Jesus at this point who were called his disciples. This was a fairly large group at this point in Jesus' ministry, which would be considered his disciples. And there was also this great multitude of people. And we're told where these people are from. First, out of all Judea. Now, Judea was the name for the Roman province that was bordered by the Jordan River to the east, the Mediterranean Sea to the west, Galilee to the north, and then that desert wilderness area to the south. It was a much larger area than the historic area that was allotted to the tribe of Judah. It includes those areas that the Bible calls Samaria and Edom, or Edom. People from all areas of Judea were present to hear Jesus. And in particular, we're told that there were people present from Jerusalem, which was the principal city of the Jews in Judea. Now, this is remarkable because, first, Jerusalem is a long way from Galilee. It was a difficult journey, and yet people traveled to see Jesus. And Jerusalem was the religious and cultural center for the Jews. There were many notable and famous rabbis who lived and taught at Jerusalem. And yet great multitudes of people came out from Jerusalem up to Galilee to hear Jesus. And we're also told that people came from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now Tyre and Sidon were two ancient cities along the Mediterranean Sea, which belonged to a group of people that are known in history as the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians. As Jerusalem was the religious capital of the region, the area around Tyre and Sidon was the business capital of the region. These cities were an ancient naval power. They were known for their commerce. They had trading posts as far away as India to the east and Britain to the west. And the Jews who lived in the area, which bordered Tyre and Sidon, they would have most likely been businessmen, men of commerce. Men who had a great business interest in the things of this world. And we're told that these people came to hear Jesus. 
End of verse 17 tells us that all these people, they came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases. The first great job of these people was to hear the words of Christ as he preached. Now, some of these people traveled a long way to hear Jesus. Without a doubt, this was an inconvenience to them. It took them away from their homes, from their business. And yet they went because they wanted to hear Jesus. Matthew Henry commented on this passage, Those that have not good preaching near them had better travel far than to be without it. It is worthwhile to go a great way to hear the word of Christ and to go out of the way of their other business for it. The second great draw of these people, were told, was to be healed. For some time now, Jesus had been performing miracles of healing. Especially during this period of ministry in Galilee, Jesus healed great numbers of people that came to him. And notice that this healing ministry included both physical and spiritual deliverance. The end of verse 17 mentions diseases, and then verse 18 says, "...and they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed." There was no limit on the number. There was no qualification. They simply came, and they were healed. This was an incredible healing ministry, both in the number of healed and in the nature of the afflictions from which these people were delivered, both physical and spiritual. They came, and they were healed by Jesus. Verse 19 tells us, "...the whole multitude sought to touch Him, for virtue went out of Him and healed them all." Jesus was a fountain of healing virtue. All who touched Him were healed. This was not always the case during Jesus' earthly ministry, but this was an occasion where there was tremendous outpouring of miraculous healing. And so after this healing, Jesus began to preach to this great crowd of people who had come to hear Him. Now we understand somewhat better the setting for this sermon that we find in our text. Jesus came down from the mountain. There's this great multitude of people gathered who have come to hear Him and be healed. All who came to be healed were delivered from their infirmities, both physical and spiritual. And then Jesus began to preach. And Jesus begins this sermon with four statements that all begin with the word, Blessed. Blessed. And then He gave four more statements which all begin with the word, Woe. And these statements, blessed and woe statements, they correspond with each other. And so we're going to look at those corresponding statements together. And as we look carefully at each one of these statements, we learn, again, what Jesus calls blessed and what Jesus calls woe. Blessed and woe. Before we begin to look at these statements, again, it's very important to make sure that we understand who Jesus said these things to or about. As we've already mentioned, there were three distinct groups present when Jesus delivered this sermon. There was the multitude, there's the company of disciples, and there's the twelve. This is a mixed group. And we know that most of these people, ultimately, were not true believers in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. As we continue through the Gospel account, we'll see that the multitudes ultimately turn upon Jesus. It was the multitudes who cried out, crucify Him. When Jesus began teaching hard truths, Many of the disciples went back and walked with him no more. We read about that in John 6, 68. And even among the twelve, as we studied last week, one was a traitor. 
The statements of blessedness apply to believers, and the statements of woe apply to those who would ultimately reject Christ. I also believe that these statements of blessedness have a first-line application to those who suffer for righteousness' sake, for the Son of Man's sake. Blessed is poverty. Blessed is hunger. Blessed is weeping. Blessed is being hated and reviled. Blessed be every affliction when endured for Christ's sake. Now we'll look at these statements, these statements of blessing and statements of woe. Jesus began there in verse 20. Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And in verse 24, we read the corresponding woe. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. The statement of blessed is very similar to the statement found in Matthew 5.3, the Sermon on the Mount. But there it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In spirit. Here there's not those words added, no connection there to the spirit. Whether this is the same sermon or a similarly or a similar sermon preached on a separate occasion, our text simply says poor. Now the word that's used here for poor, it refers to somebody who is absolutely destitute. Someone who is absolutely destitute. Now there's four different categories of poor in Scripture. The first category is those who are poor because they are lazy. Scripture provides no comfort or hope for those who are poor because they will not work. Now, the summary statement for this type of poor person is found in 2 Thessalonians 5.10. If any would not work, neither should he eat. If you have the ability to work, you should work. The next two categories of poor are given hope in Scripture. God cares. He is concerned. He says he will be an advocate, that he will help, and he will avenge these two groups of poor people. First, those who are poor as a result of calamity. You read the law of God, and God actually set up many provisions to take care of those who were poor as a result of calamity. And second, those who are poor as the result of oppression. You read through the prophets especially, and you read about God calling the rulers to account for how they had economically oppressed the people underneath them. And God says He will avenge those poor. The final category of poor found in Scripture are those who are poor for righteousness' sake. Now, this is the group that's referred to in our text. Poor for the Son of Man's sake. There are times when, for the sake of Jesus Christ, Christians must sacrifice wealth. If in your work you can only gain wealth through dishonest means, this wealth must be forfeit. The believer has no choice. You cannot gain wealth dishonestly. You are a Christian. You bear the name of Christ. And if you would dishonor Him for temporary gain, you must ask yourself if you ever truly knew Him. In times of persecution, if the ultimatum is given that Christians must either renounce their faith or renounce their wealth, their physical possessions, then our wealth must be forfeit. What will it profit you? To gain the world and lose your soul. If any of us are ever called upon to make such a sacrifice, we should not only do it, but consider ourselves blessed. Blessed. Poverty is hard. We live in the wealthiest time in world history. We live in one of the wealthiest nations that has ever been created. The average American has a much higher standard of living than most nobility has had throughout history. We've become very accustomed to abundance. 
stock market goes down a few points and we start talking about recessions and economic disaster. We do not know what it is to be truly poor, destitute, like verse 20 is talking about. We can look around the world and we can see people who are destitute, but most of us have never experienced anything like that. But if we are ever called upon to suffer poverty like that for Jesus' name's sake, we must do so. Do so gladly. Count ourselves blessed. Why? Well, as Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's an application here for the spiritually poor as well. In a very real sense, we're all spiritual paupers apart from Christ. We have nothing of value. Our best righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And blessed is the man who sees his spiritual poverty and goes to beg from Christ. Jesus doesn't give spiritual alms to beggars. He gives a kingdom. The kingdom of God. Now look at the corresponding woe. In verse 24, Jesus said, Woe unto you who are rich. Woe unto you who are rich. Now we know from Scripture as a whole that there is nothing intrinsically wrong with wealth. Abraham and Job two examples of Old Testament saints who were fabulously wealthy. And both of those men had their wealth as a result of God's blessing upon their lives. And we have many other examples of wealthy people in the Bible who were also called righteous. David, Lot, Boaz, Joseph of Arimathea, on and on we could go. People who had wealth who are mentioned as righteous in Scripture. Scripture does not denounce wealth itself, but it does give frequent warnings to the wealthy. Just in Luke's Gospel, we find the following warnings. In Luke 8.14, in the parable of the sower, we're told that some of the seeds are choked out by weeds, and that those weeds represent cares and riches and pleasures of this life. In Luke 12, Jesus gives the parable of the prosperous farmer who built bigger barns to hold his wealth, But then he died before he could enjoy it. And God calls that farmer a fool. And in verse 21, Jesus says, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. In Luke 18, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. If we have wealth, then we must take great care that it does not become a a spiritual stumbling block for us. We must hold it with an open hand. God has entrusted to us whatever we have, and it is His to take away. May we keep the attitude of Job. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away, and in all these things, blessed be the name of the Lord. Woe to those who are rich, whose riches have come at the expense of righteousness, of holiness, of fidelity to our Lord Jesus Christ. Such riches are a curse. Such riches are a weight that drag a soul down to hell. Woe to those who are rich at the expense of their soul. John Bunyan once said, The devil's service is hard, and his wages such as a man cannot live on, for the wages of sin is death. In verse 42 of our text, excuse me, 24 of our text, Jesus warns that those who are rich by this means, 
ye have received your consolation. You have received your consolation. Will you trade your soul for the world? If you do, then this world is all that you will get. And this world, we're told, is headed toward a fiery judgment. Don't throw in your lot with that. You'll be headed towards a fiery judgment as well. As we made a spiritual application to poverty, so we will to riches. Those who believe that they are spiritually rich on their own, apart from the grace of God, that on their own they're somehow able to purchase their own redemption, they will find that they are poor and wretched and naked on the day of judgment. Heap up all the righteousness that you can in your flesh, but in the end you will find that these things you had esteemed as great riches are worthless. No greater example exists than the Apostle Paul. Before he was saved, he was the example of human righteousness and good works by every imaginable measure. He was sincere. He was zealous. He was a committed religious person. But then on the road to Damascus, he was arrested by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul said, What things were gained to me, all those religious good works, all those things that he had counted on for his righteousness, his spiritual riches, he said all those things that were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. That which is the jewel of your righteousness apart from Christ is dung. It's worthless. It's disgusting. Cast it aside. See yourself as you truly are, spiritually destitute, and flee to Christ. Apart from Him, this sin-cursed world is your consolation. But in Christ, you are an heir of the kingdom of God. The next statement of blessedness we find in this text is there at the beginning of verse 21. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. And the corresponding woe is found at the beginning of verse 25. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Now again, Matthew chapter 5 has a similar statement in verse 6. Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now this is very similar to the statement about riches. Hunger itself does not make a person righteous, and physical hunger carries no guarantee that God uh, will fill that hungry person. But those who suffer hunger for righteousness' sake, for Jesus' sake, they will be filled. Hunger. True hunger. A hunger of desperation that comes from a complete inability to purchase or acquire or work for food in any way. It's one of the most extreme forms of poverty. Proverbs 6, verse 30 says, Men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he's hungry. We understand the desperate measures that people can be driven to by hunger. And we can live in poverty if we have food, but we cannot live without food. Food is a necessity of life. We must have it. But if this which is necessary for physical life can only come at the cost 
of that which is necessary for spiritual life, then the cost is too great. If we must go hungry for Jesus' name's sake, then we must go hungry. And if that is our condition, we're to count ourselves blessed. Because the promise of God is that we will be filled. We can apply this principle to spiritual hunger as well. Are you hungry for spiritual things? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Go to the bread of life. Go to the source of living water. Go to Jesus Christ, and you will be filled. Nowhere else, only in Jesus Christ. Now, look at the corresponding woe. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Think long and hard before you try to satisfy the temporal by selling the eternal. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage. And afterwards, we're told in Hebrews 12, 17, that he found no place for repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Woe to ye! The curse of God comes upon you if you are full at the expense of righteousness, at the expense of our Lord's name. You may be full now, but there will come a time when you will hunger and there will be no relief eternally. Like the rich man in hell found in Luke 16, who desired just the smallest drop of water, but it was denied him. In Luke 16.25, we read, Abraham said, Son, remember that in thy, in thy lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Don't trade the eternal for the temporal. You can make a spiritual application to this as well. Are you full? Is your spiritual appetite satisfied with the things of this world? Woe to you if this is true. You may be full now, but the day is coming when you will seek repentance with tears like Esau did, and you will find no space for repentance. The third blessed statement is found there at the beginning, or excuse me, in the second part of verse 21. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. And the corresponding woe is found in the second part of verse 25. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Those who weep now are blessed, for they shall laugh. Now, this word weep doesn't simply mean to cry, but to mourn, to mourn. Walking with our Lord, bearing the name of Christ, identifying with Him, is no guard against weeping, against sorrow, against pain, against grief. Our Lord Jesus, He wept. He experienced emotional pain and grief. Told in John eleven thirty five that, that as Jesus was going to the grave where Lazarus, his friend, was buried, that he wept. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that Jesus was in agony as he prayed in the garden right before he was betrayed. If our Lord is not above suffering like this in his humanity, then neither are we. But there is consolation for those who weep now. They shall laugh. Similar imagery is used in the Old Testament to refer to the Lord delivering His people out of captivity. 
Psalm 126 talks about the people laughing and singing as they return to Zion. In Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6 say, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so we sojourn in this world as strangers and pilgrims, and often we weep. But when we gain that heavenly kingdom for which we seek, we will laugh as we enter. Here we suffer. There we will be comforted. But woe to those who laugh now. Woe to those who laugh now. The Bible is not against laughing. The word that's used here for laughing, it's only used twice in all of the New Testament, in verses 21 and 25 of our text. And this word indicates loud laughter in contrast to the weeping that's also mentioned in these verses. Now, why is the laughing that Jesus talks about here wrong? Why does he say, woe to those who laugh? Because it's come at the cost of righteousness. Woe to the man who laughs as he discards and disregards the name of Jesus Christ. The end of such ill-advised mirth will be mourning and weeping eternally. The final blessed statement is found in verses 22 and 23 of our text. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. The corresponding woe is found in verse 26. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. This blessed statement says directly what is implied in the others. There at the end of verse 22, it says, For the Son of Man's sake. Blessed are you when you are hated for the Son of Man's sake. There is no inherent virtue in being hated. A wicked man who is hated for his wickedness is not blessed simply because he is hated. The blessedness is tied to why the person is hated. If you are hated and reproached and shunned for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice. Such hatred from men carries to you the blessing of God. In verse 22, Jesus warned his disciples about the reception they would face in this world. First, he says, men shall hate you. This warning is repeated several times in Scripture. In Luke 21, 17, Jesus said to his disciples, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me first, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. 1 John 3.13 says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Next in verse 22, Jesus said, They shall separate you from their company. A warning of social exclusion. 
If you faithfully bear the cross of Christ, the world will reject you. There will be a social separation from you. James 4.4 tells us that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God. And the opposite is also true. There will be some who separate from you because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This can be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be very difficult for us to accept. But in our text, Jesus says, if this happens to you, you are blessed. Blessed. Third, Jesus says, or said, they shall reproach you. Reproach, rebuke, taunt, to rail at, defame. They will say of you like Ahamaz said to the prophet Amos, or said of the prophet Amos, he's a conspirator. He's a traitor. He cannot be tolerated among us. And then he said to Amos, go home. Go away. We don't want you here. Go back to Judah. We don't want you prophesying here in Israel. If we're reproached for the sake of Christ, we are blessed. And finally, Jesus said, they shall cast out your name as evil. The Greek word that's used here for evil particularly indicates evil that causes labor, pain, or sorrow. Evil that causes labor, pain, or sorrow. You will be seen as something troublesome. If you are kept around, you will only cause labor, pain, or sorrow of the conscience. As a man would cast an ember out of his hand to keep it from burning him. So you can expect to be cast away. Your name will ca- your men will cast out your name as evil. As I was studying this, I thought of King Jehoram in 2 Kings 6. And he was a wicked king. He was the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And for the wickedness in the land, the judgment of God was upon them. The armies of the Syrians had surrounded Samaria. Israelites inside the city were starving to death. The situation had become so desperate that some of the people had resorted to cannibalism. Horrific deeds were occurring in the city. Mothers were eating their children. And when the wicked king Jehoram heard about these horrors, these horrific things that were taking place in his city, he said in 2 Kings 6, 31, God do so, and more also to me, if the head of Elisha shall stand on him this day. Now, Elisha was the prophet of God in the city. Elisha was not the problem. But King Jehoram cast out his name as evil. Because Elisha pointed out the problem. It's your sin, King Jehoram, that's brought this evil upon us. It's the sin of the people that's brought this judgment upon us. Repent. And King Jehoram cast out his name as evil. This is no new thing. Jesus said in John 3.20, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Don't be surprised. If you are hated, rejected, For Jesus' sake. Remember what Jesus said and count it as a blessing to suffer for his name's sake. Verse 23 expands upon that. Jesus says there, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Don't just grin and bear it. Rejoice. Leap for joy. Why? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Life is but a moment, a vapor that vanishes away. 
All the things in this life are fleeting. Try your best. You cannot hold on to them. But a reward in heaven is eternal. It is not passing away. And when we suffer for righteousness' sake, for Jesus' sake, we're promised a heavenly reward. Rejoice. Leap for joy. For great is your reward in heaven. At the end of verse 23, Jesus said, For in like manner did the fathers, did their fathers unto the prophets. Again, if we suffer like this, we are among good company. This is how the prophets of God were received in the Old Testament. The prophets had a hard job, and it was often fruitless and thankless to the eyes of men. They were despised and rejected by men, but they were blessed by God. It is far, far better to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The reproach of Christ is a greater riches than all the treasures of this world. Rejoice if you're called upon to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Now look at the corresponding woe there in verse 25. Excuse me, verse 26. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Woe to you if you value more the praise of men than the praise of God. If it is your great life goal to gain the praise and applause of men, woe unto you, for this will not gain you the favor of God. The false prophets that we see in the Old Testament, they spoke soothing and flattering words to the people of Israel. And people liked them. People spoke well of them. They were courted in the king's court. But they were deceitful, rejected by God. Woe to you if you are numbered among them. Matthew Henry commented, We should desire to have the approval of those that are wise and good, and not be indifferent to what people say of us, but as we should despise the reproaches, so should we also despise the praises of fools. Woe to you if you would trade righteousness to be spoken well of by men. This morning, from this text, we've looked at four statements of blessing and four corresponding statements of woe from Jesus. May each one of us individually examine our lives by this text. What do I hold dear? Where do I look for blessing? According to Jesus, am I among the blessed, or am I among those to whom Jesus announces woe, the curse of God? All this world, all the good things in this world, all the things that we enjoy, become a curse for us if we choose them over Jesus Christ. But every privation, every trial, every form of suffering, it is a blessing to us if we bear them for the sake of Jesus Christ. May each one of us examine our lives by this text this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word. So much that's here seems or is, opposite of the way we naturally think. When we look for temporal blessings, we want to be loved by those around us, 
I want everyone to accept us. We want to be full. We want to be wealthy. We want all these things. Lord, help us to never fall into the temptation, never fall into the trap of exchanging that which is eternal for that which is temporal. Lord, may we see ourselves as blessed when we suffer for righteousness' sake, for the Son of Man's sake. Would give us grace in this area. Lord, may we go forward and honor and glorify you, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.